Oh, I see. You can be seated. That's my first instruction. You can be seated. It's great. It really is an honor for us to be here with you this morning, this weekend. It has been full, but we've enjoyed meeting so many of you. And uh, even though we had to tell the same story over and over again, we're happy to do that because it's, it's not just our story, it's the Lord's story and, and how he's been working in, in us and through us. Now, I know last week, Pastor Paul had you play a little game, right? We all stood up and, right? So I'm, I'm going to start with a game too, but I'm not going to fu- play it fully. Um, in, in our midweek program back home, we, we call it BLAST, right? So BLAST stands for Building Lives Around Spiritual Truth. We sometimes play a game we call Would You Rather? And normally we get the kids, they would actually, you know, would you rather this or this? We'd have them go to opposite sides of the room. I won't make you do that because you may not get your seat back. But here, let's, let's play a couple of quick ones. Um, would you rather eat pizza with anchovies or, so pizza with anchovies, or spaghetti made with spaghetti squash. What do you think? Pizza with anchovies, spaghetti or spaghetti squash. And this can get dangerous, right? Or the second one is this. Would you rather read an awesome book, or would you rather watch a good movie? Read a book, watch a movie. Okay, I'm going to get a little, a little deeper for you now, and I don't want you to answer this one out loud. Okay, just... I, I, you can if you want, but I don't, I'm not looking for it. Are you more of a grace person or are you more of a truth person? Have you ever stopped to think about that? We all have our own tendency to be more grace or more truth. And then the, the follow-up question is, where do you wish you were? Do you wish you were the other or are you glad you are the way you are? See, I'm curious about that, but I'm not going to ask, but... I think the tension here is, is we often see grace and truth as the opposite ends of a continuum, right? Almost like they're part of a balance beam, and you got a moving fulcrum trying to keep either grace or truth balanced with the other, other piece. But I, I want to be honest with you. As I've been studying and, and reading for this message in particular, I've kind of come to the conclusion that they're not two ends of one continuum, But actually, grace and truth are two separate and important attitudes, two characteristics within us. And we're going to look this morning at how Jesus is perfectly grace and truth. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to open up to John chapter 1. We're going to have most of the scripture on the screen anyways, but if you have your Bible, open to John chapter 1. I love having my physical Bible open because I can begin to see where my favorite passages are. I don't know, anyone else find, you know exactly which part of the page certain verses are on? Yeah, I love that. I think it's an important piece. But if you have your Bible, John 1, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17 this morning. And I'll read them for you now. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll skip to 16. Out of His fullness... We have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Jesus Christ, sorry, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now before we jump in a little deeper, I just want to draw your attention to two pieces here. First, in verse 14, it tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And I think it could also say here, he's full of grace and he's full of truth. All right? He's not just in the middle on the balance. He's full of both of them. And the second thing I want to keep in mind as we go through this is on verse 17, 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He came through Jesus. So let's go back to, to verse 14. Let's, let's just kind of walk through the verses a little bit here. The first thing we find out is that John, the author, who is one of Jesus' disciples, is talking all about Jesus. This whole book that he's writing, this gospel, is all about Jesus. And we, we look at this introduction to his book, which starts in verse 1 of chapter 1, where he talks about this idea of the word, all right? Or in the Greek, the logos. But he talks about the word. And this idea of the word could be, he may be utilizing a Greek concept at the t- from the time, the idea of a divine reason. But he also might be sort of alluding to, like in the Old Testament, we see wisdom personified, right? We talk about finding wisdom, and, and it's sort of personified, and we... we it might be that John's kind of using that terminology to, to draw to his sort of uh, Old Testament Jewish listeners. But he's talking all about Jesus. But he doesn't tell us Jesus' name until verse 17, right? In, in the verse, first verse, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So the Word's been around forever, right? And I would say that the Word was God, but the Word is God and will always be God. In other words, the Word didn't at some point become a God. The Word is God. And there he was in the beginning with God. We find out in verse 3 of this chapter that the Word is the agent of creation. Uh, you know, he, John's alluding to the first chapter of Genesis with this in the beginning idea. And I think he's also alluding to the fact that in Genesis 1, we start to see hints of the Trinity. He says here that the the word is the one that was the agent of creation, right? So the Father, God the Father, spoke creation. God the Son did the creating. And we find in Genesis 1, again, that the the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. We begin to see the Trinity together from the very beginning. We find out in this chapter also that 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 the word is life. And that the word is the light of mankind. And like I said, in verse 17, we finally get introduced to the word. And that's Jesus Christ. So what John's talking about in this is all about Jesus. The verse goes on and tells us that the word became flesh. The creator became the creation. And he willingly took on that flesh to come and be on the earth with us. He didn't just simply appear like us, he became like one of us. I mean, he was born as a baby to Mary and Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth. He had to learn just like you and I had to learn. In fact, Jesus even was tempted just like you and I get tempted. But there's one huge difference. Jesus did that without ever sinning. And I don't know about you, maybe you're different than me, but I can't fathom what it would be like to feel sinlessness he became flesh and it goes on he made his dwelling among us he didn't come as a king already as an adult in royal robes living in a palace giving us directives he came and he actually lived among us like i said he grew up in nazareth he he worked as a carpenter with his father he got hungry so he ate He got tired, so he slept. He walked this world with others. And his whole ministry was with others, his disciples and the people he came in contact with. 
And then it tells us that Jesus showed us his glory. John says, we have seen his glory, which is interesting because we're also told that Jesus didn't point to himself. Did you realize that? Often in his early ministry, he, he would say to someone, like he might heal someone or, or uh, uh, remove a demon, and he'd say, like, don't tell anyone. This is a secret for you and me right now. Now, the person who was healed or, or had the demon removed couldn't keep quiet, and they'd go and tell whoever they could tell. But Jesus kind of said, like, just keep it quiet for now. Like, just, we'll be quiet. And in fact, he says in John 5, I do not accept glory from human beings. John 7, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but who, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. I'm not seeking glory for myself, he says in John 8, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. See, Jesus, when he walked on this earth, he didn't go looking for the glory. He Instead, he pointed to the glory of the Father. And he said in his high priestly prayer, as he's praying to his Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus was doing the Father's kingdom agenda. And he said, I finished that, I completed that by pointing people to you. And yet John says, we have seen his glory. And we know Jesus did show us his glory, right? In chapter 2 of John, we find the wedding at Cana where, where he, he turns the water into wine. And most people there had no idea what just happened. They had no clue that Jesus turned water into wine, that they had run out. We find in chapter 11, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Right? And, and not like he just ha happened to pass out for a couple hours. He was four days in the tomb dead, and Jesus raised him. So did we see his glory? Absolutely. John says it. We can see it in all the stories of the miracles Jesus did. And it tells us more about Jesus, that this verse says he is the only son. I mean, parents, if you're a parent, you love all your children. And when that first child is born and you love them with all you, all you have, you can never understand how you can have love for a second child. And the second child comes and there's really no problem loving them. And the same with a third or, or a fourth or a fifth, depending on how many you're going to have. We have all kinds of love for our kids. But it points out Jesus is the only son. You know, when, you, when you're an only child, you have that same love from your parents, but you also have something else. You have all the focus, right? And John makes it clear that as far as God is concerned, he has one son, and this is Jesus. And in the God the Father is telling us, he's pointing us to his son. He is the only son. He's the only son of the Father, like I said, he's the, God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. We talk about the Trinity as three equal persons, right? And yet there is a subordination within the Trinity, right? God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. Jesus, as the Son, is the second person. And Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And yet they all work together as God. Let me come to this, this line, this part of the verse that I really want to focus on today, and that says Jesus is perfectly full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. They go hand in hand. We all, we all understand that. And like I said, Jesus is full of them both. It's not some kind of continuum where he just knows where the right balance is at any given time. Think of it this way. If you, if you ever had to do vehicle maintenance, right, your vehicle needs oil and your vehicle needs gas. 
And if you have, if you have all oil and no gas, you're going to be well lubricated, but guess what? You're stranded. But if you have all gas and no oil, you can probably go gangbusters really quick, but you're going to seize up that engine. Been there, done that. Not a good, not a good thing. And if you put the oil or the gas in the wrong place, you've got big trouble. And yet Jesus is perfectly full of grace and truth, right? These are two separate characteristics. He shows his grace when he's healing the sick. He, he shows his grace when he's giving sight to the blind or making the lame to walk. Or really, if you see it, the thief on the cross beside him. There's a lot of grace given to that thief. And yet Jesus also is all truth, right? He's always truthful. Now, I know sometimes you, you get to know people in a different way, and you recognize some people, you need to be a little more straight with them. You, ha- you can't be so, you know, you can't sugarcoat things for them so they don't misunderstand. But Jesus, when he was the straightest, when he was the most blunt, was usually with the religious leaders, right? And because they were the ones that should have known better. They should have known what the law was saying about the law, but they created all these rules to go around the law. They, they put burdens on the people, and Jesus was very blunt with them. They should have known better. But we also see Jesus using grace and truth at the same time. Think about the, his interaction with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, you remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. If some of you are older, you've got the song in your head now. You're welcome. But he met Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was hated by people. And, and, and yet Jesus came into town and said, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you at your house. He showed grace to Zacchaeus, this man that nobody liked, came to his house for dinner. And then we don't know exactly what happened in the dinner, but we know that afterwards Zacchaeus kind of repents and confesses what he's done and begins to want to make restitution. Jesus said something during that meal. He shared truth with the grace for Zacchaeus. Or when he, Jesus meets the woman of Samaria at the well, right? He, he's bringing his disciples and says, no, we need to go through Samaria. And the Jews never went through Samaria. They always went around. It was longer, but they bypassed it. But Jesus went into that town, and he showed grace and spoke truth to that woman. And because of that, many believed in Jesus. There was an article written a couple of years ago by um, Kevin DeYoung talking about this, this whole concept of Jesus being grace and truth. And he, he put it this way. He said that Jesus really is all grace, all truth, all the time. All grace, all truth, all the time. In Jesus, we, we see release from the tension of trying to balance which one, where do we go, grace or truth? And Jesus says, no, no, it's both. These are two separate and integral attitudes. And we often think of grace and we think of it being the New Testament. We think of of the law as the Old Testament. But I think verse 16 here tells us something different. Let me read you verse 16 again. See if you catch it as well. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace in place of grace already given. Now, I intentionally used the NIV this morning because it's the only one who translates that verse that way. Most commentators, when I went and tried trying to find out what they said about this, all agreed 
that this is the idea, that this is the idea of grace upon grace. I think we're closing with that, that song this morning, but grace upon grace, kind of like grace that is like the waves on the seashore just comes in again and again and again. And, and if you've walked with Christ any length of time, you've experienced that grace again and again and again. You know, God's mercies are new every morning. But then there's this one standalone commentator, and probably the one I trust the most. He says something different about this verse. D.A. Carson says that Jesus is, talk, is Jesus is bringing grace in place of grace already given. In other words, he's bringing New Testament grace in place of the Old Testament grace. I'm not going to suggest that Carson's right and the others are wrong, or I'm not going to suggest the others are right and Carson's wrong. In fact, I think they're both right. And really, we have to look at the context of this verse, which verse 17 points to. See, this verse has is, is, is got a, a splitting these in two different ways, and so does verse 17. Verse 17 points to the law of Moses, right? The grace already given, and the grace and truth of Jesus. The new grace. But these ideas, they work together, I think. I mean, the Old Testament really does seem like a different different set of rules, a different regimen, right? We see the regulations, the sacrifices, all the works that needed to be done under the law. But really, it's still a form of grace. Now, God, as sovereign, as creator, really, he could have created the world, set it all into motion, got everything created, and then sat back and just watched what we do to each other. Can you wonder what that would be like? He could have done that. But I think what he did for us was show us grace. See, he chose to love a specific people. He chose to love Israel. And he chose to give Israel a law or expectations of what he wanted them to do. And the law as grace really is God protecting ourselves, protecting us from ourselves. And I think mercy, grace and mercy kind of really go hand in hand as well. Right? Mercy, you could put it this way, mercy is not getting what I deserve. Right? Not getting what I deserve. Jesus died on the cross for us, taking our place. That's mercy. He got what I deserve. But grace is getting what I don't deserve. Right? Eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. None of us deserve that. And again, Jesus' death on the cross opens up the way of salvation. That is grace. See, he stepped in and did for us what we could never do. And really, if if you're following someone who loves you that much, you want to be a little bit more and more like them, do you not? Don't you want to reflect them a little bit? I mean, as reflections of Jesus Christ, we should be working hard, striving at being all grace, all truth, all the time toward those in our lives for the sake of the gospel. A reflection, right? A reflection is an image. It's a a copy. The the reflection will never be the reality. I'm going to assume that this morning when you looked in the mirror getting ready to come, you didn't see the image in the mirror and think, oh, there I am, right? You, You knew that was a reflection. It's not the reality. It's an image of you. Or like you think about the moon, how the moon reflects the light of the sun, And that's something I've learned living out in the country. 
is just how dark the night can be when it's cloudy, right? When it's cloudy and there's no light reflecting off the moon, you can't see it very much at all. But on those winter nights when there's a full moon and the sun is reflecting off that moon, it is bright as day. You can see in the backyard, no problem. But the moon isn't the light. The moon is reflecting the light. The Apostle Paul said this to the churches in his letters. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I'm going to be an image, a reflection of Jesus. Follow me as I do that. And even the fact we call ourselves Christians, right? Christian, Christ one, little Christ. We are images, reflections of our Savior. Maybe think about a young son sitting on the bathroom counter pretending to shave with that trying to be like dad. And see, following Christ should want to make us, should make us want to reflect him, to look like him. And that process that we, we begin is, is called sanctification. That's how we begin to look like Jesus. Sanctification is one of those big words preachers like to throw around, makes them look smart, right? But it's actually, it's, it's one of three phases within the Christian life justification, sanctification, glorification. And justification is simply that point when you submit your life to Christ. That instance, you are now seen as justified in the eyes of the Lord. It's a one-time act, right? I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. And at that moment, your sanctification begins. And through the rest of your life, you will be on this journey of being more and more sanctified, more and more like Jesus. I am being saved from the power of sin. As the Spirit works in us and through us. And that doesn't end until glorification. You know, when Jesus returns for us, or when you pass away, your sanctification ends and you begin your glorification. For eternity. With Jesus in the kingdom. And maybe you're wondering, like, so if I'm supposed to look like Jesus, why do I feel like a broken or foggy mirror? Well, the simple answer is because you can't make yourself look like Jesus. You, you just can't do it. And I don't mean to discourage you. I don't mean to suggest you don't measure up. It's not the case. But the reality is we can't do it on our own. We, we really need the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to make us more and more like Jesus. And so reality, sanctification, is this partnership between you and the Spirit that makes you more and more like Jesus. Then we do our part in our humanity, in our frailty. We do as best we can. And then only in our frailty can the Spirit step in and say, no, I've got the rest. I'll keep moving you. There's this old phrase, and I'm not even sure where I got it from, but it says this. It says, work like it depends on you. And pray like it depends on the Spirit. Work like it depends on you. Pray like it depends on the Spirit. In other words, you can't just sit at home and say, I'm just going to go home. I'm just going to pray that I become more and more like Jesus. And just sit on the couch, kneel by the couch, and just keep praying, 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 and never do any work in your sanctification. But the reality is, you do need to do some work. But like I said, you can never do it yourself. You need to pray like it depends on the Spirit. So you go and you do the work. You figure out, how can I read my Bible? How can I study? How can I pray? How can I evangelize? 
and you're praying, Spirit, work in me, show me, help me. Help me do what you need me to do. And I'll tell you, the verse isn't in the Bible that says God helps those who help themselves. I looked for it one time. It's not there. We need to work on our sanctification with the Spirit. We need to work at being all grace and all truth all the time. How does that look in, in, our, in our public life? I think James 1.19 kind of gives us a bit of a view on how this can look in our life. That's where it says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. See, it's only by listening and watching and praying that we can live this grace, truth life. And the big problem that we all have is that our grace and truth buckets were, were made imperfect by sin in the Garden of Eden. It'll never be perfect here for us. But we need to work at it. We need to try and be more and more like grace and truth. Because the important thing to remember is this, that grace without truth is a problem. And truth without grace is a problem. Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes the world away from Christ. This is Randy Alcorn writing. He says, grace without truth breeds moral indifference and keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. Stop and think about that for a second in, in life and how that, how that happens. He explains, he says, attempts to soften the gospel by minimizing truth keep people from Jesus. But also attempts to toughen the gospel by minimizing grace keep people from Jesus. See, it's not enough for us to just offer grace or truth. We must offer both. All truth and no grace is brutality. All truth, no grace is brutality. Truth is important. It's very important. You can't fix brokenness without clarity, without truth. But you need to understand and acknowledge that truth. But see, when you have truth without grace... Uh, it can be more destructive than helpful. Let me give you a little silly scenario, okay? Say you're uh, going out with some friends, maybe you work with them or they're from school, and you're going to go out for a dinner, but, but they say, hey, bring someone with you, bring a friend. And so you bring someone from church, okay? Someone that you know really well, they don't know the people you're eating with. And that you go for dinner, and, and your friend, uh, you look over and they've got broccoli stuck in their teeth, Okay? And you want to make sure that they get that broccoli out of their teeth. You say, hey, you got broccoli in your teeth. The whole table's now been notified there's broccoli in their teeth. Was there broccoli in the teeth? Yeah. Should it be removed? Absolutely. But you've now embarrassed your friend by telling everyone about the broccoli in their teeth. Again, Kevin DeYoung writes about this. He says... Truth people are easy to admire. Think about those truth people you know. They're easy to admire, right? Because they have convictions. They have principles. They stand up for what's right and wrong. They set standards. They speak out against injustice. But when I say truth without grace is brutality, it's because that becomes a, an excuse for belligerence, right? You call someone on their, their harsh truth and they say, well, I'm just telling the truth. You don't mean to lie to them, do you? 
See, truth people are loyal to their cause, but we wonder if they're loyal to us. Truth people want to make us better, but they have no room for mistakes. Truth people make difficult decisions, but they make life difficult for us. So then really, we should just be grace people, right? Just go the other extreme. Problem is that all grace, no truth, is hypocrisy. Grace is important just like truth. But an overemphasis on grace might mean there's no immediate backlash in a situation, but usually that means there's going to be something bigger happen down the road. Let's go back to the broccoli in your friend's teeth. Hope there's not broccoli for snack out there today. A grace person may see that broccoli and be like, oh, I don't want to draw attention to the broccoli in their teeth. So I'm just not going to say anything at all. Nothing said at the dinner. No one notices. You go home. Perfect. It's great. Grace abounds. But then the next day you go to back to work where your work colleagues are or back to school and everyone's talking about what a great time everyone had that night, last night. And then you realize they're making fun of your friend. Everyone saw the broccoli. You thought you kind of got rid of the situation by just ignoring it. But now these people you work with, these people you go to school with, are actually making your friend the butt end of their jokes. So did, did, did all that grace really help the situation? We need to be grace and truth people. See, grace people, when they're all grace, they're pleasant to be around, right? They, they don't expect anything of us. They don't ruffle feathers. They always cut you some slack. But we wonder. We wonder if they're pleasant to be around, but do, we, do they actually like me or do they want to be liked? Grace people are tolerant, but do they know the difference between right and wrong? Grace people demand nothing from others and they get nothing in return. But Jesus is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. He didn't need to figure out the balance. He just oozed them both. So at the dinner, instead of announcing to the table that your friends got broccoli in their teeth, instead of ignoring it and hoping for the best, you find a way to subtly let your friend know, hey, you got some broccoli in your teeth. Send them a text if you're allowed to do that at the table. But let them know and help them save some embarrassment. See, that kind of a person, that grace and truth person, they're loyal to their cause, but they're also loyal to us. They, they accept us for who we are, but they help us become who we should be. They're clear and compassionate. They're truthful. They're graceful. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that in my life. Do you need grace and truth in your life? I know I need that. And we all need that because we should be showing this all grace, all truth, all the time towards others in our lives. We all need that person in our life, but you know what? You need to be that person for someone else. The reality is that your neighbors are not my neighbors. The people you work with are not the people I work with. The people you go to school with 
are not the people I go to school with. And that means you have more influence in their lives than I will ever have. And so you need to be grace and truth to those around you. And not just so that we can be nice people, but for the sake of the gospel. That's why we do this. See, our verse that we're looking at is, is the beginning, the opening of John chapter 1, the whole book of John. And at the end of the book, John tells us why he wrote this. Right? John chapter 20, he says, look, there are so many more things Jesus did and said that couldn't be included here. But verse 31 says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Jesus, John isn't writing about Jesus being full of grace and truth because it's just a good way to live. I mean, it is a good way to live, but it's not the point. John's saying, I want you to know this for the sake of the gospel. Because Jesus isn't just this nice, good teacher. He's the Son of God. So does that mean that we should take every conversation with people to the cross? I might shock you by saying no. In fact, I might shock you by saying, please don't always take every conversation to the cross. I know you're shocked. But let me tell you why. See, there will be instances where you could walk up to someone on the street, you could share the gospel with them, and they are going to turn to Christ right that moment. But the reality is, the Spirit's been working in them for a time. And you get to witness the fruit. But others need more time. There's a good book, and I, if you're getting into evangelism, this is a great book. It's called Tactics. It's by Greg Kukul. I want to read you a few paragraphs, and I think you can follow them on the screen. He explains this and why we don't take every conversation to the cross, okay? I think that in some circles, there's pressure for Christian ambassadors to close the sale as soon as possible. When pressed for time, get right to the heat of the message, get to the gospel. If the person doesn't respond, you've done your part. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. That is sharing truth, right? Not a whole lot of grace there, though. He says, a wise ambassador, though, weighs his opportunities and adopts an appropriate strategy for each occasion. Sometimes the simple truth of the cross is all that's needed. The fruit is ripe for harvesting. Bump it and it falls into your basket. That's what I was saying about the, you meet someone on the street and share the gospel with them, and they are ready. They are ripe for harvest. Usually, though, he goes on, the fruit is not ripe. The non-believer is simply not ready. He may not even have begun to think about Christianity. And dropping a message on him that from his point of view is meaningless or simply unbelievable doesn't accomplish anything. In fact, it may be the worst thing you can do. He rejects a message he doesn't understand and then he's harder to reach the next time. You go to the cross too soon, you actually end up pushing people away. Now here is my own more modest goal. I want to put a stone in his shoe. All I want to do is give him something worth thinking about. I want him to hobble away on a nugget of truth he can't simply ignore because it continues to poke at him. Have you ever been out for a walk or a run and you get like a tiny little piece of gravel or even just like a piece of sand in your shoe? It's incredible how much that just bugs and annoys you. 
Kukul saying, I want to leave that sand in his shoe that he can't stop thinking about where we were in the conversation. See, you should be living a life that outsiders might look at you and go, wow, they're different. But you can't just live that life hoping someday they're going to ask you why you're different. It doesn't actually happen all that often. You do have to share the gospel eventually. You have to get to the cross eventually. And I know it sort of sounds like, Dave, you're saying this is pretty easy to do. I'll, I'll tell you, it's not easy to live that life. But it is simple. It is simple to live this life when you have a plan. Have you ever taken the time to figure out how will I share the gospel when I have the opportunity? How will I do that? See, preparation is very important. We know, we believe the Spirit can give us the words at the right time, and He will. But He also brings back what we've worked on, what we've, what we've studied, what we've prepared. And there are lots of great tools and strategies out there, right? You could use the Romans road. Take someone through the book of Romans and show them, you know, the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is, is, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's, there's the bridge, or, or there's the seven spiritual laws, but I'll tell you my favorite right now is the three circles. And I know some of you know the three circles. You've been trained. Anyone come to the training in the spring that Pony Church came and did with you? Yeah. My daughter was one of your trainers. I learned the three circles this year because of her. But having a plan, knowing how you're going to share the gospel is so important. We live grace and truth for the sake of the gospel. Now, when you're getting ready in the morning and you look at that mirror, do you see someone who is reflecting Jesus more and more every day? It won't be big changes every day, but do you see incrementally changing to be more and more like your Savior? Not so you can be liked, not so you can be seen as some kind of a leader, but because you belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, you should be His reflection, living all grace, all truth, all the time. And when you rely on the Spirit for that sanctification you will begin to look more and more like Jesus. When you look back on the last year, the last couple of years, you might be going, oh, wow, Like the Spirit really is working in me. I really am becoming more like Jesus. And my hope is that as you do that, you will begin to look more and more like the real thing. And that you are looking forward to the day when He comes and takes you back to be with Him for eternity. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we, we are so grateful for the word that you've given to us. The written word where we can understand and, and learn your expectations on us, how you want us to live this life. But even more so, we are thankful for the word, your son, Jesus Christ, who chose willingly to step out of heaven, to, to step out of eternity with you, to step into life with us. To take on the human flesh, to, to live and experience this life on this earth. Even to the point of being tempted without sin. 
Father, we are grateful that he was willing to go to the cross, to step in in place of us, to take the death that we each deserve so that we don't have to. We are forever grateful for Jesus Christ. Would you make us a people who are learning to be more grace, all grace, all truth, all the time for the sake of the gospel? We pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.